Well, we've come to the, uh, the penultimate uh, sermon in this series on change, with the last one in a couple of weeks' time. And um, if you've been coming here through the last few weeks and you've been listening to these uh, sermons, you, you might be thinking, well, it all sounds so simple in many ways. Uh, we want to become more like Jesus. We have the, the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. Let's get on with it. And yet, why is it such a battle? And why does it feel like a, a, like a New Year's resolution to, to get fit this year or to, to go on a diet, to be more organised? And we start with those good intentions, but it doesn't last very long. What is it that stops us from changing? Well, this morning we're looking at um, quite a familiar passage from uh, Genesis 3. And what we see here is that just as much as we want to change, the devil wants to stop us from changing. And the talk of the devil in today's society might appear a bit um, uh, strange, might appear to some outside the church faintly ridiculous. But if we are Christians, we know from our own experience, we know from God's word as he tells us that the devil is a real live spiritual being. And we ignore him at our peril. The Bible says in 1 Peter, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's constantly there in the Bible. He appears to, to thwart God's purposes. It was the devil who entered Judas to make him betray Jesus. It was the devil who tried to tempt Jesus himself. So how does the devil work to stop us changing into greater Christ-likeness? Well, as we look at this passage in Genesis 3, we see that there are the three ways in which he does that and that we need to be aware of today as well. Because Satan will try and stop us changing. And the first of those ways is by undermining our trust in God and in his word. By undermining our trust in God and his word. God has placed Adam in the garden. If you are familiar with chapter 2 of Genesis, you'll know that. You'll know the, the beauty of the, the, the garden, the abundance of everything that's in there. All kinds of tree pleasing to the eye, good for food. And he tells them in chapter 2, at um, verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. A huge blessing. Any tree in a garden, just one little restriction. So how does Satan tempt Adam and Eve to disobey God and end up facing his punishment? Well, he ignores the freedom. He ignores a huge blessing, doesn't he? And he focuses on that one restriction. And look at the tactics he uses here. He says to the woman in verse 1 of chapter 3, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What is he doing? He's sowing seeds of doubt, isn't he? He's making it appear unreasonable. Making the woman question her understanding of what God has said. Well, how does that as a woman reply? Well, she plays it back with a fairly straight bat. She says, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, verse 3, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, 
and you must not touch it, or you will die. And must not touch it, did he actually say must not touch it? We didn't, did he? If we look back at what he says, he didn't say that. And already God's word here is being distorted, is being twisted. What does Satan do next? Well, he, he questioned the command, and now he questions the consequence. Have a look at verse 4. He says, you will not certainly die. You won't certainly die. Don't believe all that, that rubbish that uh, God tells you. He's only saying that. Look at how he goes on. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying he doesn't really have your interests at heart. If he did, he would let you eat anything he wanted. He's just protecting himself and his interests. Go on. You deserve it. Have you heard that before? And already at the moment that the woman here has lost her trust in God's word, the sin has effectively been committed. And Satan is doing that same thing today, isn't he? The first attack is at God's word. If he undermines the trust of Christians in God's word, he scored first blood, hasn't he? Just think about the, the debates over this past week about gay marriage. And the way those in favour of it have twisted the scripture to make it say what they want to say. Planting doubts in the minds of Christians who submit to God's word, who want to do that. Satan undermines the trust of Christians in God's word, and we need to be aware of that. What does Satan, Satan do next? Well, the second thing he does is make the sin appear attractive. Because once a woman has lost confidence in God's word then it's no longer a question of, well, should I, shouldn't I? It's actually, is it good for me? Would it be a nice thing to do? So look, uh, look down at what it says. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Sin is often pleasing, is often desirable, is good to the eye, but it doesn't make it right. And having given in to the temptation, she then gives some to the man. And instead of him saying, well, well, no, actually, God told us not to eat this. What does he do? He just does exactly the same thing. And as a result of that first sin, we all have inherited sinful natures. And so we all want naturally to please ourselves rather than God. And our decisions are naturally therefore based on what is in it for me. Is it tasty? Is it attractive? Will I become more wise? Will I become more powerful as a result of what I do? And if we are Christians here this morning and we're, we're finding it hard to change, it's often because deep down we still enjoy the sin. We say we want to change. We don't want to do that anymore. But actually, there's part of us that says, actually, I quite enjoy the idea of getting even on that person who's um, done something against me, that was, against me that was wrong. Somehow managing to get my own back. Deep down, we love getting our own way. We love being proved right and showing just how clever we are. We love just acquiring new things, even when there are those who don't have much at all. We love having a good old moan, don't we? A good old gossip, having a laugh at somebody else's expense. And we love actually being independent, not being told what we should do doing it our way, on our terms. All these things which we know, actually the Bible told us, tells us not to. 
But deep down, there's something in us that actually says, yeah, I quite like doing that. And this is where we come on to the devil's next powerful weapon in his armoury, because once he's tempted us to sin, and we've fallen into temptation, he keeps us under his influence. He doesn't let us get free. And the way he does that is by filling us with pride. Look what happens when Adam and Eve um, become aware of their sin. In verse 8, it says, um, or verse 7, it says, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realised that they were naked. So they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They've been aware, they've made aware that what they've done is wrong. But um, what do they do? Do they repent and go to God and say, God, I'm sorry? Do they ask for his forgiveness? They don't, do they? Now, they did exactly what we often do when we become aware of our sin. And the first thing they do is to hide it. Look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We hide it because we're, we're ashamed of it. We don't admit it to anybody. We put on a presentable front. Yeah, everything's okay with me. Thank you very much. Not really struggling that much at all. But Proverbs 28 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. The one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Why do we hide sin? Even when we know the sin is wrong, we want to do something about it, we're struggling, we could go for help to another Christian. Isn't it because we're more worried about our reputation? It may be that we can only deal with, with us and if we do go to somebody for help, that we know there's somebody there who can help us. And yeah, that would mean them knowing about it. And that would mean us falling off the pedestal that they've put us on. This week, Stephen Fryden, with the Resident News, confessed that um, last year he tried to commit suicide. He's got a, um, a psychological condition. He's bipolar. But... Um, when he did commit suicide, you know, his family came to him and said, look, why didn't you tell us this problem you had? And he, he was saying, actually, that was the hardest thing to do, to go to your closest friends and family and tell them you're struggling with something. It's the hardest thing to do. You can go to somebody else who doesn't know you, but to go to the people who know you was the hardest thing to do. And it's the same with sin, isn't it? We're embarrassed about it because we are worried about the people who are closest to us, what they will think of us. Tim Chester writes this, he says, think about it. We're prepared to choose sin, reject God, abandon freedom, and even risk hell, rather than have people think badly of us. True repentance lets nothing get in the way of change, not even reputation. James 5 gives some very practical advice. It says, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that's a prayer not just for physical healing, that is also a prayer for spiritual healing. You can't obviously go around confessing your sin to everybody, but there will be people you have confidence in, you can trust, other Christians that you need to be accountable to. Meet up, read the Bible together, pray together, share your struggles together. Don't hide your sin. What else does um, their pride um, and does our pride stop us doing when our sin is revealed to us? Well, the other thing we do is we excuse it, don't we? We excuse it. Look at verse 9. God calls the man. 
He's the one to whom he gave the, uh, the command in the first place and uh, expects him to take responsibility. He says, where are you? And he answers, well, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I, I hid. And God says, have you told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Well, the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's not my fault. You put the woman here with me. She gave it to me. It's not my fault. What does the woman say? Exactly the same. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the snake deceived me. And I ate it. It's God's fault, it's the woman's fault, it's the snake's fault, it's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? It's not my fault. And we all do that, don't we? We all hate to face up to our responsibility. And so we look to blame somebody else. And yes, there are often mitigating circumstances, aren't there? You know, maybe that you were provoked. It may be that you have been so stressed and tired and you've been through an awful lot that you just let go, you, you lost your temper. You said something you shouldn't have done. And maybe it was the other person. Maybe they did seduce you and you gave in to that. And maybe you've been through a difficult background. And um, there are things that have affected you. But our sinful hearts are always have a way of justifying our actions. If somebody else lets us down, if they irritate us, if they're dishonest, then somehow I must be justified in what I do. But to live that life that way is to live like a victim. And the Bible tells us we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We are not victims. If we're giving in to sin and pointing the blame at other people or other circumstances, what we're really doing is blaming God. He's let us down. He's not in control. He's allowed it to happen. But James, in the book of James, it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. That God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. God doesn't tempt. He doesn't allow us to be tempted sometimes. But even then, there's great reassurance in Corinthians. that says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Ultimately, whether we choose that way out or not is up to, to us. The decision remains with us. God had given Adam responsibility and he failed. And so he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. You cannot blame anyone but yourself. They try to hide their sin. They try to excuse their sin. And one thing we're often prone to do is to, to minimise it, isn't it? Uh, we call sin something that is less offensive than it uh, sounds. And uh, we come up with things like stretching the truth, telling white lies, as if white lies are somehow better than black lies. Talk of things as misdemeanours, don't we? All we make our feel is feel a little bit better by um, looking at other Christians who are doing the same thing. Well, if they can do it, then surely it's right for me to do it. There's safety in numbers. Or we think, of, well, think of all that good stuff that I do. Surely that outweighs the little bad thing I've, I've done here. 
instead of excusing or minimizing sin, it should drive us to our knees. We should come in humble repentance before God and say sorry for it. 2 Timothy 13 tells us about the word of God. It's inspired by God. It's useful what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And if there are bits we don't like, then we, we might try and avoid them. They, don't, they make us feel good about ourselves. The truly humble come to God's word prepared to be changed, prepared to, to deal with the stuff in their lives that, that needs dealing with, ready to repent of any sin that is pointed out to them. The reason we try and hide, the reason why we excuse, the reason why we minimise our sin is because of our pride. Well, if these are the ways the devil tries to attack us, to stop us from changing, um, undermining our trust in God and his word, making sin seem attractive and appealing, and filling us with pride, how do we counter that? What do we do about it? What do we got to, to fight the devil back? Well, we do so quite simply by nailing our sin and our pride to the cross of Christ. It's got to be nailed to the cross of Christ. If pride is the most destructive thing in our lives, then humility is the thing that God prizes most above all else. It's amazing um, how many times this word appears in the Bible. I just trying to do this this week. You've got um, a computer. Uh, go onto the Bible Gateway website and just type in the word humble and see all the different places it appears in the Bible. And just have a look through those and see what, what it teaches us about being humble. Because if you do that, what you'll see is that there are characters that are, <coughs> the great characters of the Bible are those who are humble. Those who are God prizes and those he chooses to, to lead his people. Remember Moses, a very uh, a reluctant leader? Somebody who didn't feel he could really speak and uh, lead God's people. Um, yeah, what does it say about Moses? It says he was a very humble man. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. There are references to how much God values humility in Isaiah. It says, these are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Well, Psalm 149 says, For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Well, what does it mean to be humble in these situations? What is that exactly getting at? Well, what it means is to trust completely in God. To acknowledge that everything that we have comes from him. There are commands to, to be humble, aren't there? To, to be, it says in the New Testament, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Clothe yourselves with humility. But how do we do that? How do we go about being humble? How do we clothe ourselves with humility? Well, sometimes God teaches us humility. He teaches us as a lesson. And uh, in a prayer meeting on Thursday evening, we looked at uh, Deuteronomy 8, where uh, the people of Israel are preparing to enter the Promised Land. And they've been through 40 years of, uh, of wandering in the wilderness, and you think, well, what was that all about? Why did God allow them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? And it says there, it says this, it says, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. 
this preparation for going into that promised land. It says also, it says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He withdrew their basic security, withdrew their, their food, the basic things they needed for survival, to teach them they needed to depend on him. Their physical survival, but also for their spiritual well-being. And the same goes for us today. And as they prepare to enter the land, uh, he's saying, these are things I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you an abundant land, a land full of rich things, of fruits and everything else. But he says this, as they prepare to go in, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Be careful. When you enjoy all those good things, those blessings that I will give you, be careful that you don't think they, that you somehow earned them with your own hands, but remember that I've given them to you. Well, what are the humbling experiences that we have in our life? Well, it may be that when the Lord takes something away from us, he is humbling us, he's teaching us, he's testing us. And a lot of us here will have had humbling experiences. The Lord will have taken something from us that is important. And maybe our job, our livelihood, uh, maybe our health, maybe a family member who is uh, very dear to us, who we find difficult to live without. And in each of those situations, what can we do? We can throw ourselves at God's feet and seek his help. And another humbling experience may be when we meet somebody who has so little materially and yet has so much more spiritually. And the reason that is humbling is because we realise that all the stuff that we have, the stuff that we've put our trust in, is actually pretty worthless. That's why mission trips are often so much of a blessing to those that go on them. Um, some people went on a trip to Swaziland last year, Simon and John Paul and uh, Peter, all very humbled by that experience. They met people who had very little they came with their sort of Western backgrounds, probably thinking, as all of us would in that situation, that we're coming with so much to give, with our Western wisdom and sophistication and training and everything else. And yet being humble by somebody who just has a very simple trust in God. Who are the Christians you admire most? Are they the best speakers? The most influential writers? inspirational leaders? Or are they the humble servants in whom you see that real godly humility? Well, how do we become humble, though? Do we wait for God to strip away our, our stuff that we're dependent on? Do we uh, go on a mission trip? Not all of us can do that, can we? Well, we can't, but all of us can go to the cross of Christ. Every one of us can open the Bible Every one of us can read what it says about what Christ did for us on that cross because that is the most humbling experience to experience what he did for us on that cross. And it's there that we see the full extent of the grace of God, the love of God, that Jesus has done everything for me. Everything I need, nothing else I need has he done for me that he didn't do on that cross. The guilt, the punishment for all that sin we've been talking about, making us feel pretty low, 
He's taken away. He's freed us from that. And that is the amazing thing, isn't it, about the cross. That we come to it and we, we're just in awe of his love for us. The fact that he should want to do that. And we come to that cross. We don't need to justify ourselves. We don't need to excuse ourselves or minimize what we've done. We come there and we lay it before him. And he says, I will take that away. I will deal with it. He gave up everything for us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's there that I realize I have nothing to offer. I come naked, with empty hands, receiving from him. It's there that uh, all those idols that Jeff talked about last week, I realize are just worthless. Why do I bother clinging on to them? It's there... I realize my need for him. And it's there that I realize, however crafty the devil may be, however he may still have an influence over me, that he has actually been defeated. That Christ has defeated him on the cross. Jesus Christ came, it says in the Bible, to defeat, to destroy the works of the devil. And we can rejoice in that. Well, as we come to, to an end, we need to have a healthy attitude towards the devil and our vulnerability. Now, we can't afford to, to underestimate him and pretend that, um, that we're safe. But neither should we um, be afraid of him because we worship one who is far more powerful, who has already defeated him and who one day will make that victory complete. And so as we seek to live lives that are changing, that are more Christ-like, let us put our sin, put our pride to death. Let's nail it to the cross. And let us grow in the quality that Christ wants so much from us, that humility that he's modelled for us. And let's do that by continually coming back to the cross. And as we think of Christ's victory on that cross and what he had to do to achieve it, we can then In the words of um, the book of Hebrews, we can throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We're going to have a moment of quiet to um, just reflect on our own lives, what uh, we're grappling with, what needs to be dealt with, And then bring that to the cross and repent of it. Ask Christ for your forgiveness and rejoice in the cross and leave it there. Father, we know just how easily we fall into sin, how easily the the devil leads us astray in different ways, how much our pride refuses to acknowledge it and so we do come now and ask that you would uh, deal with it we come and repent of the pride that um, is the cause of much of our sin we come and ask and seek your forgiveness and we thank you that because of Christ's death on the cross we know that we are forgiven and that we are cleansed and that we can walk forward with great confidence in the victory that Christ has achieved for us.
And so, Lord, we pray that you'd enable us to be humble in all that we do, to clothe ourselves with humility. Lord, help us to seek that quality above all. And help us to put to death all that which would hinder us, which would entangle us as we leave it at the cross and trust in Christ for all that we need. We thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.